0: That's where I'm going with this. <laughs> yep. So, we're, so we're, we're setting up a pipeline. We're going to ask providers to create, to order these tests. Some patient who maybe has some variant that's at increased risk for epilepsy and suggests that they don't need surgery, two years after the t- test comes back, it could turn out to be the case that that information is wrong. That's what you're telling me.
1: Yes. And. <laughs> This is I think this brings up a couple yeah. of conundrums. Sorry, go Uh-oh. ahead. One <laughs> of the one of the things that I think we also have to remember is that it is almost never appropriate to interpret this genetic material information absent some sort of clinical information too. This is part of a picture. Okay. So that's in many cases, it's part of a bigger picture. So we do have to remember that. And also that one of the great challenges in communication science and Kevin, what is your area that you are diving deeply into, but communication science is the communication of uncertainty and change in science, right? Uh, We see that all the time as one of our big challenges. And we have got to think out a way and we have teams right here working exactly on this, to how we communicate with patients at the time of that first test to help them understand that things may change over time.
0: Hello, and welcome to Informatics in the Round, a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, physician and informatics chair at Vanderbilt, at KBJVanderbilt on Twitter, www.kevinbjohnsonmd.net on the web, which is where you can find this podcast, or on Podbean, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Well, we have a great episode today and a bunch of great guests. To paraphrase Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, exomes and genomes and VUSs, oh my. Time to go back to high school biology, folks, but not the version of it most of us took. This one is the one they're teaching now. Our fourth episode of this year covers a very current informatics topic, how healthcare is using your genomic information to understand your symptoms and your diagnoses. This idea of genome-informed medicine is a major part of precision medicine. It's been at the center of cancer therapy for a few decades and is now becoming a part of health care beyond cancer. Here's the rub. Most doctors don't know very much about it. So it's up to those of us who understand it and who specialize in informatics to come to the rescue. You'll meet three such informatician genomic medicine experts on this episode. Sarah Bland, One of the most insightful and quick-witted people i've had the pleasure of working with is on this podcast as both an expert on the issue that we're going to discuss and as the person who keeps it all real (laughs) melissa mcfeeders is a public health informatics and epidemiology expert for those of you who've been listening to informatics in the round for over a year you've heard melissa discuss covid with us before however her other life at vanderbilt has been helping to coordinate this entire program we have about how we can bring patients' genomics into the care of everyday physicians and advanced practice nurses. As you'll see, although this is a relatively new area for her, she's really mastered a lot of it. Travis Osterman is a physician I've often called the doctor's doctor. Uh, At least this doctor, should I ever get cancer, he's phenomenal. He's the consummate professional and a terrific communicator. Because of his expertise in cancer informatics, he's one of the most knowledgeable people in the country about genome-informed care, and brings that knowledge to a very challenging discussion. So we start off the discussion today not with a songwriter-singer, but with a songwriter-singer's most essential team member, the doctor. Galen Garrett is Senior Executive Medical Director of the Vanderbilt Voice Center, Guy M. Manis Chair of Laryngology and Voice, and Professor of Otolaryngology. She's a phenomenal physician, very well-known in the community, and has been taking care of many of the patients who have various ailments that affect their instrument, their voice, for quite a while now at Vanderbilt. She could tell us stories about a lot of well-known artists, but she can't. I'm kind of excited for you to hear this episode, so let's get to it. Hope you enjoy it. let's go ahead and uh, get started. So we have a bunch of really interesting guests here today and, and a topic that I think a lot of people are going to enjoy, if not be completely befuddled by. Both are fun though. So Melissa, who are you?
1: I'm Melissa McPeters.
0: And everybody should know you, but in case they don't, where will you be working soon?
1: Uh, I will be working at Research Triangle, RTI International, Research Triangle Institute as it used to be called, um, and move into Michigan.
2: Fantastic. Thank you. And let's see, Travis, who are you? Hi, Travis Osterman. I'm a medical oncologist here at Vanderbilt. I treat thoracic malignancies, so primarily lung cancer, and work with Melissa on our clinical genomics projects. Wonderful. I think we're going to be coming back to that. Sarah Bland, who are you?
3: Be Sarah Bland, uh, Senior Project Manager in the Center for Precision Medicine, and I do a lot of projects related to uh, genetics in the health record.
2: Every
0: episode, we try to have somebody deeply involved in the music industry, usually songwriters, sometimes singer-songwriters. But today, we have a very special guest.
4: So I'm Galen Garrett. I am the medical director at the Vanderbilt Voice Center, and uh, I'm an otolaryngologist by training. Uh, but you know, by working at the Voice Center, we uh, we are a preventative and kind of management. Uh, Clinic and a multidisciplinary clinic, um, taking care of all the singer-songwriters and and all the wannabe singer-songwriters in the Nashville and Middle Tennessee and beyond areas.
0: That's great, wannabe! I love it. Um, so, Galen, how many patients do you see a week?
4: Oh gosh, um, probably. I mean, total patients, mm-hmm. probably seventy-five. Wow! Wow! Those are different types of voice disorder, folks. Right.
0: So I'm curious about this. I'll bet you many people have no idea why it would make sense for me to talk about you being integral to the Music City music scene. So do me a favor and convince people who haven't thought about this about why it's so important that Vanderbilt and Music City have people with your specialty and skills.
4: Well, I think kind of when you start down at the nuts and bolts. Um, you know, voicing is, is one of the key areas of communication, obviously, and, you know, we're doing this right now. Um, this podcast would not be possible without our voice communication. Uh, and so, you know, communication is a big part of otolaryngology as a specialty. So, but what what makes, you know, Nashville and, and our area unique is that we have a lot of professional artists right. um, who, use their voice for their, you know, for their vocation. And it's how, you know, you know specifically talking about singer-songwriters, you know, that's how they message the public. Um, they communicate through music and song and the words uh, that, uh, that are in that, that music. So um, they do tend to have problems from a medical standpoint. And from that, you know, we, our job is to, to make sure that these, these people can continue to spread the message and communicate how they need to, um, to the public.
0: Now, I would imagine that, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but that a lot of people who profess to be a singer-songwriter have had little to no training in how to sing. Am I too far off?
4: You are very on. Um, you know, I will say, though, being in Nashville, we, we do have kind of a unique situation with uh, a couple of colleges very close together that do have a very um, uh, strong music focus. Uh, Belmont University, for instance, has actual songwriter major. Um, you guys probably knew that, but, we did. you know, we we see we, we see a lot of those people, but they're you know, they're wanting to perform. Um, and, you know, that's a small group, but the majority, as you said, are coming to Nashville from other places and do not have that formal training that, uh, that helps to prevent problems down the road.
0: I can remember when I first got here, I, I've done a little bit of singing and actually been to the voice center a couple of times. And uh, they informed me when I first started working in the studio that before I could actually really get involved, I needed to learn this thing called the Nashville number system. And at least the story I heard back then, and you'll have to tell me if I'm way off, is that group people and singers like Dolly Parton were the ones who really, um, I guess, espouse the value of the number system because on a bad day, when you can't sing the song that you wrote in the key that you wrote it, you can simply tell the entire group to go down, you know, as opposed to saying going down a third, you can actually write the piece in the number system and then pick a new starting note and everything else stays the same. Is that about right?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, to be honest, I've never heard it described that way, but, but yeah, that, that's exactly right.
0: Yeah, it's a real thing. And, and part of the issue was that a lot of these singers, you know, they write these pieces for on their best day. They come to the studio and they just don't have it.
4: I will say that when a, when a singer comes in and they say, I'm a songwriter, I, I usually ask them, are you a singer-songwriter or are you a songwriter-singer? Because <laughs> yeah. there is a difference.
0: And what do they say? Do they like, are they honest?
4: They are actually. Um, because, and, and, and the other thing I always ask to your numbers point is, are you writing more for yourself to sing or are you contracted to write for other artists? And if you're contracted with another artist or, or group of artists, what key are you trying to write in, um, and are you writing in such a way that it will adjust easily to your targeted artist or group um, because that can have an impact on them developing problems right if they're writing in their key and not in their key, in their own key?
0: right, yeah, and I can imagine trying to pretend that you're writing something for seal when you're a bass singer would probably be a problem. right, yeah. See, I got that. Okay, So get, so Galen, I want to ask you another question. Um, you're a busy physician. And I imagine that there's been at least one patient who has come to you with, um, let's just say, vocal cord nodules. Imagine that, I'm guessing there's probably a few, but imagine that we have a system so that you could actually take a patient who might have a little bit of a raspy voice or saying they're a little bit fatigued at the end of a singing session and see whether they are at genetic risk risk for vocal cord nodules. How would you order that test?
4: So, first of all, that would be amazing um, on, on many levels. Yeah. And if you could, because, you know, we, we would love to see people right at the beginning. When they come to Nashville, they haven't developed any problems, and they are just trying to figure out how to do it right. Um, that test would be really a game changer for us. Um, so, you know, how would I actually physically order it? I'm not sure if that's your question. Yeah, it is. How would you physically um, order it? Well, I guess uh, I would uh, order it like I would order any other test. I would hope. It w- I hope it would be that easy to get.
0: You would. And then how would you, would you have, have you ever had to interpret any genetic results that have come in?
4: I have not actually.
0: And have you taken care of patients with diseases like say Treacher's Collins or other diseases where there may be a genetic component to their illness?
4: Yes, now that I have.
0: So do you just rely on others to interpret the information that might be relevant to you?
4: Uh, yes, I do. I interpret it. I, I rely on my, uh, my very smarter genetic colleagues.
0: Yes, I wouldn't call them smarter. I would call them genetically aware.
4: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go.
0: So this is the topic we're gonna to talk about today. And, and I think it's fair to say that if I had a 1,000 doctors at Vanderbilt and a 1,000 nurses at Vanderbilt, and we were all on this Zoom call, in addition to having bandwidth problems that would make it impossible for us to do the podcast this way, very few of them would be able to do what I just asked you to be able to do, Galen, because we've never learned these things. I asked Melissa and Travis to come and talk a little bit about what we've been trying to do at Vanderbilt um, because it's, it's a pretty amazing thing, but it also is going to potentially make the care that you deliver different. Melissa Travis, what is this thing that you guys have been working on that is so awesome?
1: So what we've been trying to do for about almost two years now is really develop a pipeline of processes and services and support efforts that ensure that our patients get the most genomically concordant care that is appropriate for their particular condition, in a way that is seamless to our clinicians so that they don't all have to become genetic experts in a nutshell. So that, that's that been our work for the last couple of years, and it, it ranges from technical things to less technical things, but just trying to make sure that we're creating that wraparound process for our patients and our clinicians.
0: Travis, what makes it hard for the average doctor to do anything in genomics? Why isn't it the same as me ordering a hematocrit or a blood test?
2: One of the challenges here is that the science of how we actually do these tests progresses very, very quickly. Um, In my space, these are tests I order every week and I've seen the platforms that we use to order these tests migrate um, through probably six different platforms over just the last 10 years. And when I say platform, usually what I mean is we're switching vendors because a new vendor now offers a better test because it's better for our patients, it's faster, it's cheaper for our patients, et cetera. That's really hard for us to keep up with internally here at Vanderbilt. Now, once you start ordering these tests outside of our system, the results don't flow in typically like you would expect any of our internal systems like you're talking about Kevin, like CBCs and BMPs, these lab results that your primary care doctor is often uh, ordering for you. Hold on, let let me ask you a question. So are you saying that it's possible
0: to order, like for doctors to order these tests and not have it be a part of the hospital system?
2: Absolutely, so this is, is very common actually. Um, you can work directly with one of these companies to get the results for the patient. Um, now, there are downsides to this clearly. Um, that physician and that team that are responsible for finding a way to get that into your medical record so that the rest of your healthcare team can benefit from that information. Um, especially if we're talking about genomic testing for something like vocal cord nodules, there may be other tests. There may be other conditions that are found on that on that panel that may uh, impact the rest of your care outside. So these come in essentially as faxes. These are PDF documents that are really hard for us to use in the rest of our in our medical record.
4: It would really help us to counsel them on, you know, because we're all the time talking to every artist and pretty much making the same recommendations about, you know, how they use their voice, how often they use their voice, you know, when they should rest or not. And you really just kind of have to go on past history. But if we could anticipate how they should best take care of themselves, um, again, I think that would be an amazing step forward.
0: So one of the things that Travis mentioned was it's possible that by giving let's just say that you have one of these tests that you're ordering. It's entirely possible that you're gonna get results that are really relevant to the patient's risk for breast cancer. How do you feel about the one who ordered the test and now you find out that they have a gene that might make them an increased risk for breast cancer? What are you gonna do?
4: Is that question to me?
0: Yes, it is. (laughs) And by the way, that's a sign.
3: (laughs) Uh, Kevin, can I chime in right here? because I have heard about this exact issue. Um, my, one of my projects is we're collecting family health history um, and it's gonna develop a report of recommendations to participants in this study and say, hey, you might be at a higher risk um, based on your family health history for breast cancer or prostate cancer or colorectal cancer. Um, so you might wanna talk to your doctor about you know, doing uh, mammograms a little earlier, um, or doing more screenings earlier. Mm-hmm. And as we've been going through this process of getting this report developed, I've seen doctors be very cautious, saying they don't want these type of reports in their patients' health record. Uh, for example, one of the doctors on the committee that I um, that we presented to, it was an infectious disease doctor. So she said, "I don't want to deal with report uh, that has something to do with breast cancer if that." patient of mine doesn't come here for any kind of care related to
1: breast cancer. Uh, that's a lot of responsibility on me. And and I'll, I'll say, in addition to that, what we're hearing when we talk to clinicians across campus is this stuff is changing so fast. That science is moving so quickly that it is a lot of responsibility to feel like you have to um, be able to constantly interpret a report that may come in with a bunch of you know genetic information that hasn't necessarily been in- interpreted and That's exactly what we're trying to create, is a system that wraps around those clinicians in a way that they know where where to go, how to request that consultation, how to make sure that they're getting the patient to the right place, or that in the clinical decision support kind of environment actually triggers them to ask questions, to pursue further testing based on what's in that record without them each and every one having to be a genetic specialist. Because we want our specialists doing what they specialize in, but knowing that the rest of that patient care is getting taken care of.
2: And I think one of the, one of the challenges is making sure that we just make that available to our, our provider base. I would suspect that you've probably referred patients to other colleagues based on incidental findings on CT scan or potentially on physical exam or biopsy. Et cetera, and that doesn't feel outside of practice because that's just something that we're used to. And I think that's really where Melissa and I are trying to get our system to is, who are those genetic folks at Vanderbilt that can help when that incidental finding is found?
4: You no, know, and I and I think that that's exactly what I was thinking as as y'all discussed this, is because it, I have been faced with you know incidental findings on CT scans, and and it does take you down that road where you feel uncomfortable at first, but then you feel the obligation that you know you need to follow through with that finding for a test that, that I ordered. So no, that's, that's exactly right.
3: As somebody who I work with genetics, so it doesn't feel out of the realm of what I do, but why do we feel like genetics seems to be so different if this is already a process that seems to be pretty similar to other things that already occur? What makes genetics so different um, for, a, for a physician who might have a genetic report that they have never dealt with before.
2: I think that this is a field that's, that changes rapidly. Um, so I think that that's, that's the biggest, I think that's probably the biggest piece. I think there's also concern on the provider side around um, some of the impacts that may be outside of medical care. So for instance, the impacts that, does this does this result affect my insurability for health insurance? does this result impact my insurability from a life insurance standpoint? (laughs) What is the impact on my children? So I think these are questions that those incidental findings usually don't actually cross. And so that's a space that's new ground for, for many of my colleagues.
1: I think that family piece is really important, that your genetics aren't just about you, the patient, and making sure that that the right you know, cascade testing is in place that the right kind of services are in place and that the clinicians are really comfortable having the conversations with the patients I think I think um, that's new it's new information and a new kind of conversation that needs to be had so that's a future.
2: What's cascade testing Melissa.
1: That's when you have to test other family members, because you find something in one of them that may be affecting others and so. You know, this, this is different than um, the, the finding that you have on a CBC that's about that one patient in front of you only. And so it has bigger ramifications in that way. But the converse of that, Sarah, so I think to your point is that why is it so different? It's part of our health. It's part of our health system. It's part of medical care. And maybe it is new and different, but we need to set the strategies and the procedures and the processes and the ethics and everything in place to not be thinking about it as this really out there um, part of medicine.
0: When did you first start understanding this issue of genetics? In other words, I think this is pretty new for you, isn't it?
1: Totally. Travis taught me everything I know. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) so then why can't all of our other faculty learn this? physicians learn this?
1: I know a little bit, I know a teeny tiny bit of meta knowledge about this topic, enough to know where we've got holes and spaces and where I can start to make connections. But if you gave me a report, a genetic report on a patient with a bunch of numbers and letters and VUSs which are variants of unknown significance so who knows i wouldn't be able to interpret that at all um and so i you know i i i'm a i'm a newbie to this i'm about 2 years into really working in this space so i think what i have is a very surface level of knowledge but enough to know what i know and enough to know what i don't know
3: <laughs> yeah i like to say uh that i know enough to be dangerous <laughs> cuz enough people know that I work at Vanderbilt and work with genetics. And so they like to ask me about, you know, the bump on their arm. Um, and I have nothing to do with the bump on their arm. <laughs> so I totally understand that feeling. So do you guys get
0: a sense that there's a lot of patients walking around who should be getting genetic testing, but we have
2: clinicians who don't know how to do it?
1: I think no. we do know some.
2: Go ahead, Travis. Oh, I, I yeah, I'll, I'll expand on that. I think we certainly have guidelines for some of those patients, and I think we're trying to improve our testing in, in those spaces. But I, Kevin, I think there are probably two aspects to that question. One is who should be tested because of guidelines. The things that we know about you um, really drive us to want to get that genetic test because we think it can improve your care. Um, the other one, which is, is harder and gets back to some of Sarah's points, I think around physicians, is what about these patients that present with kind of a complex constellation of symptoms yeah. and who do who do we test and how do we match up those constellation of symptoms to some of these rare conditions that can only be diagnosed by a genetic test. And that's a real challenge if if you think about a family medicine doctor or an internist that maybe has never seen this condition in their entire practice, or maybe it's like even never been described to them, um, but we're still responsible ultimately for making that diagnosis.
3: I think you bring up something really great here about uh, the family medicine, because I live out in, uh, in Wilson County. So we've got Wilson County Vanderbilt Hospital out there. Um, you know, I can attest that a lot of those physicians probably have not dealt with some very rare diseases before because they're typically the routine doctor for workman's comp issues, for the typical people with heart disease, um, you know, maybe some referrals to cancer. And we're building up out there as Nashville grows, but a lot of these doctors, I doubt, feel very comfortable dealing with any kind of genetic testing. So how is Vanderbilt supporting those uh, practices that are outside of the Central Medical Center? I think a lot of those doctors out there probably aren't very comfortable dealing with genetic testing. Um, Are we going to be offering this type of service out to those hospitals that are not in the uh, local national area.
2: sir I would say actually a you know some of the maybe nationally or internationally renowned orthopedists that we have here that may specialize in revisions of a particular joint would equally feel uncomfortable with these tests. <laughs> so I don't think I don't think Wilson County is unique in this in this situation at all. Mm. Um, Melissa, do you want to talk at all about some of the efforts that we have to try and deliver decision support?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, we're, I think we're doing some interesting things. So we really are thinking about this as a pipeline from the very beginning of when a patient shows up and thinking about do we even have in the electronic health record from the get-go the right kind of information interpreted in the right way about that patient's family history to start driving conversations about genetics. And then we move along that pipeline and think about as we take care of that patient clinically Are there triggers that pop up that tell us, hey, this might be a good candidate for a genetic test? And I'll give you a great example. Our kids that are coming in and getting worked up for epilepsy will often have an EEG to look at what's going on electrically in the brain. And in those reports, there's actually language in the interpretation that might suggest that there might be a genetic cause or etiology of that particular epilepsy versus a structural one. And what's really important about that is the pathway that a kid goes down is really different for those. Meaning that if you figure out that there's a certain kind of epilepsy that is being caused by a genetic reason, you might be able to avoid an unnecessary surgery for that child in their brain. So that's a really big deal. If we can make sure that we're alerting clinicians early enough that, hey, let's check out, check out the potential genetic etiology before you head down that surgical path. So we're building clinical decision support that can read in those reports and make that alert to the patient, to the physician. So that's just one example. Others are, at, you know, for our prostate cancer patients, are they getting the right kind of, you know, we know that there are guidelines in prostate cancer, that there should be certain kinds of genetic testing. Are our patients all getting that testing when they should? And so we're building clinical decision support to look through populations of patients that fit that profile and say, did they get that kind of of genetic testing, and if not, to alert the physician and say they they might need this. Now, it may be that they did, and it isn't in their record yet. And so we're also having to sort of build the electronic health record a little differently so that it can receive and use these kind of of genetic data that it wasn't sort of putting in a structured format before. So that's another piece of that work that we're doing.
0: But Sarah's Uh, talking about the fact that, you know, down in Lebanon and Wilson County, this alert's going to show up. And there's going to be a physician or nurse practitioner or advanced practice nurse who's going to look at it and go, I don't even know what that means. So is there is there some other part of the workforce? Or how do you, how do you want to help those doctors and nurses out?
1: We got a button for that. We're building that too.
0: <laughs> Sounds very informatics-y.
1: It is right. But what's informatics? Informatics is people and data and technology all working together, right? So they're exactly right. So what we're doing is building out a consult service, which is a workforce piece that uses informatics tools to help clinicians make decisions about, given this clinical information, should I order a genetic test and what should I order? And then when they get that report back, given the complexity of this report, can you really help me understand it or reinterpret it if it needs to be interpreted? So that is a people and technology and data thing altogether that's that's also being built.
2: (laughs) And we have a genetics and therapeutics clinic that providers can refer a patient to that will really provide that kind of end-to-end service. So they'll do the pretest counseling, discussing the potential impacts that result might have on family members and, and other pieces ahead of time. Um, they'll figure out the right test to order, because sometimes that's a challenge. And then, as Moses said, those are the same experts that can interpret the test and have that discussion with your patients. So um, if you were a a provider and you get alerted that this is something that your patient would benefit from, we also have that handoff where you can go to the Genetics and Therapeutics Clinic. What about this All All of Us project?
0: Aren't you doing something to return genetic results to patients?
3: Uh, I think you're referring to the Emerge Network.
0: Hey, Sarah. What about this eMERGE network?
3: (laughs) So the eMERGE network uh, is funded by the National Institutes of Health and Genomic Research. And they are um, a part of, we're part of 10 different sites around the U.S. And we are recruiting 2,500 participants here at Vanderbilt um, to do genetic testing and then return those results back to participants um, and help them get genetic counseling if they need that. Um, So we're doing this exact same thing as a part of a research project, and we actually did another iteration of it um, in a five-year grant uh, just two years ago, and we wrapped that up. Um, And I can tell you that some of the the things that we faced were, one, the exact same thing we're talking about. The providers would get these reports and say, what the heck do I do with it? The second thing would be um, that was pretty big was disclosing that information to a patient, say, you might want to talk to family members. And that Um, was because
0: you, I'm sorry, that's because you guys were disclosing it or the provider was
3: disclosing it? Uh, We would help providers disclose it because we found that a lot of providers just weren't comfortable giving this information on their own. So we had our geneticists and genetic counselors help return these reports back to the participants to let them know what they meant. Um, And we followed up with their provider and said, we're happy to continue this conversation if you need additional assistance, um, consulting with this patient on this report.
0: So what kinds of things come back that you would have to say you might want to let your family member know?
3: Uh, A lot of times it's cancer related. Um, So breast cancer, prostate cancer, types of cancers that are inherited. Um, we also saw a lot of cardiovascular health-related uh, reports that, um, you know, someone probably has had some elevated cholesterol or blood pressure, um, and that might carry on through their family that they want to disclose that information. A tricky situation that we had was um, patients who, within the five-year study, got a, we got a report back that they had a certain type of genetic variant and then found out that that patient had died during the time that we had done the blood draw and gotten the report back. Wow. So then we had to decide how do we return those results back to their family so that they are aware your family member had this genetic test.
0: Wow, that's tough. And then you have to, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously it wasn't the genetic variant that killed them.
3: Right. But, but yeah.
0: that's information that a total stranger is now gonna be providing the family who, A, are a little bit grieving, and B, were never counseled about genetic information being relevant, right?
3: Right. And that's really difficult to explain to a family member. Um, you know, they didn't die of, of X. However, this was something that they had, and you might want to consider doing testing for the rest of your family members. You know, it's, it's an ethical situation on deciding if you even want to disclose that information, because at that point, the participant of the study was deceased are they would they have been comfortable disclosing that information
0: right right wow did you run into any of the issues related to uh, paternity
3: we did not um we did not do that type of testing but that is a very uh, you bring up a point that i was going to ask melissa and travis is that what happens to these direct to consumer tests that um and we saw this we had patients who would say well I thought that my report that you gave me was going to look like the 23andMe report that I have. What does this do? And I know that physicians at Vanderbilt are having patients come in with those reports. What happens to that? uh,
2: Not all genomic tests or or genetic tests are created equal. There's really an entire (laughs) spectrum of testing that can occur. Um, All the way from single gene testing, which is I have a really specific question and I think you have this disease and this would really just confirm it all the way up to what we would call whole genome sequencing, which is where someone actually sequences that patient's entire genome, meaning all the DNA that we're born with. There are a few kind of tests that are much more common than either end of that spectrum that we do along the way. Most of the things like 23andMe are doing panel-based testing. So they're doing large panels of genes. And then they're giving you the results of those panels here at Vanderbilt. We're also doing whole exome sequencing in some particular areas in the clinical genomics laboratory. Um, Whole exomes are the—it's the set of your genome that you were born with that is limited just to what we call exons. And I like others in medical school, Kevin, you probably too, learn the exons are expressed. So these are the parts of your genes, ultimately, that end up going on to build all the parts of your body. So these are the areas that most likely would have problems if there's something uh, that we can find. And so we're actually doing that here at Vanderbilt. Those 23andMe tests, the vendor direct test to patients, again, usually fall on the panel side. A lot of times the, the, The results are accurate. The trouble is how do we integrate those with the rest of our systems? So the decision support and other pieces that Melissa talked to, if this is sitting in a PDF, I can't put that into a report. I can't tell you that when you prescribe this drug, I know that you're not going to metabolize that drug appropriately. So I think that's actually the the challenge is how do we ingest all of this information into the medical record so that we can use it in all of our healthcare settings. So, Melissa. Yeah. You are an
0: epidemiologist. I am. Who has worked for the Department of Health. I have. What skills did all of that teach you that helps you with this project? Because this sounds very complicated.
1: It is very complicated. I love complicated projects. So, with that. <laughs> Yeah, so that's a great question because how on earth did an epidemiologist, a public health informatician epidemiologist end up uh, working on a massive clinical genomics effort? And it really comes down to being able to put complicated things together in ways that make sense to people across different kinds of specialties. And so I think what, what I bring to this and what I'm excited about is, yeah, it is super complicated, but we can break it down in ways that it really turn out just to be about what is the best thing we can do in this circumstance to help a clinician and help a patient? And how can we interpret this in ways that everybody can understand and move things forward? So one of the greatest things about this project is I work with these brilliant geneticists, great. But I also work with these amazing folks in finance who are just trying to figure out what's the right way to structure this process so that we can make this work for our patients and they don't end up you know, financially bankrupt because of genetic stuff. And I work with, Um, genetic counselors who are just really at the cutting edge of thinking about how do we communicate with people about this and what are the important things that they need to to know about and educators that are thinking about how do we turn this into something that means something to patients and so my job and what what i think i've learned over my years of doing sort of messy public health is to be both sort of um microscopic but also to see the big picture and be able to put those things together. And so that's what's exciting about this. At the end of the day, the genetic data could be other data. They could be social determinants of health. They could be other kinds of clinical things. The real question is how do we take really complex things in a field that's moving really fast and get the right information in the right way into the right hands at the right time for our patients? So that's how I look at it every day.
0: I'm curious what's scaring you. This sounds like it sounds like you've got it all worked out, but oh, no. I've been in these meetings and I know you don't. So what's scaring? What's not going to happen? What's going to be the hard
1: challenge here? Well, I think that equity is one of the biggest challenges. I absolutely think that equity is a huge challenge in this space as we think about who gets what information and under what circumstances and how do we make sure that it's sort of democratized and, and equal. I think the other scary thing is it is moving so fast. The science changes so quickly that how do we build a system that isn't based on current content? But it's based on the ability to move content through it as it's evolving, um, and that that's incredibly challenging. And then you're doing it in an environment of lots and lots of people. You know, people are always challenging. So it's not just about the technology; it's getting everybody on board um, in a in an area that feels a little bit scary to a lot of people. What do you think, Travis? What's been scaring you
2: from from my standpoint? I look at how quickly the field has evolved and even since we've started this project, I would now consider RNA-Seq, which is looking at not just the genome, but actually the transcripts that that genome creates to make proteins is now start part of standard testing really for my patient population. That wasn't true two years ago um, and came up on us really, really fast and so as i think about especially managing the data we're building out an infrastructure to bring in these results back to kevin's earlier point of you know our our like our internal labs like cbc's and bmp's and the other labs that your primary care doctor might routinely order we're trying to bring in these lab tests just like those But at the same time, if all of a sudden the field changes and there's a company that offers a better test, it's going to be really hard to just not justify going to that better test if it's better for my patients, even if we've put in this really large investment to try and bring in these results. So I spent a lot of time really just trying to think about that that framework and making it robust so that we can make sure we can digest that information and lots of information that, honestly, we don't even know what's going to come around the, the corner next.
3: Yeah, I. that's actually what I've been worried about as we've talked about this, is that even in Emerge 3, where we returned results back to 2,500 patients, that was two years ago uh, now for us. And since then, we've had 15 patients we've gotten updated reports on who have had their genetic results reclassified, meaning their genetic test now uh, says that they had a genetic variant for X amount of disease or X disease and now it's downgraded. They no longer have that same risk because new science said they don't. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if we start getting a lot of these patients in or doing this testing, how are you going to keep up with that science and alert all those patients and providers?
0: Mm-hmm. So before you answer that, I, I know that that's an issue people probably are confused by. So let's talk about this issue of called variants Versus variants of unknown significance. Who wants to take that on? I'll take it. <laughs> Melissa, Try for it. those of you who can't see, just lean back in her chair, almost to the point of falling over. So
2: I'm thinking that's a no. That's usually a handoff. That's usually a handoff. So I'll take that one then. Yeah. Um, so I guess what what some people may not know, or maybe most people don't know, if if uh, if you don't recall all the intricacies of high school biology um, class, is that when we do the sequencing. Um, We get a set of letters that are the base pairs off um, of the sequencer. That doesn't tell us what's right and wrong. Um, We have to align that to a genome. Um, There are some standard human genomes that are available. Version 38 is the current one that we're aligning to right now. Um, from that, there is a complex, a, set of, the
0: one that's unique for millennials or what's
2: that? <laughs> this is, this is, I mean, this is actually really to Melissa's point about equity though. This is not a, a genome that is a mixture evenly across, um, across and ancestries. This is a genome that has a, a really narrow view. And that's what we're using, just to be fair, for almost, it's really our standard in all settings I know of, um, for alignments. So this is gonna go then into a set of software that's gonna look at this alignment genome versus the what we see for you. And it's going to start trying to understand what's different and what's different normal. Clearly there are different parts of our DNA that make us us, and that doesn't give us risk for disease. And then what's different abnormal? So the different abnormal then gets flagged into a file and that file will be reviewed by someone called a molecular pathologist. This is similar to the pathologist that's going to look at your breast biopsy, et cetera. So this is someone who has specialty training in this. They're going to look through this list and they're gonna, as Sarah said, they're gonna look at the current science and say, based on the analysis from our pipeline and the current science, We're going to score this as something that's essentially benign, meaning that we don't think that this is going to ever cause you any problems, likely benign, likely pathogenic, pathogenic meaning we think this is going to cause some sort of problem, or pathogenic, or as Melissa's alluded to, something called a VUS, which is a variant of undetermined, uncertain, or unknown significance, depending on who you talk to, Um, but ultimately a VUS, where we're not really sure what this is, and Sarah's point about reclassification is even if your genes don't change over the years, the science and how we understand the implications of those changes really does, and it changes pretty quickly. So right now, standard of care is if it moves two notches on that ladder of four, we're really obligated to call you back or contact you somehow and say, we thought this was going to cause you a problem. Now we've got enough examples that say, no, it's actually not. So it moved from pathogenic to likely benign, for instance. Um, so that's that's what reclassification is. And we're still struggling really at Vanderbilt here to come up with policies around this because this is really the cutting edge of the field. Yeah.
1: And I think I would say that, that the struggle is national and international to really think about this and that a lot of really smart people are thinking and writing and really trying to figure out what the processes need to be, including a team here at Vanderbilt that's really working on it.
0: So I'm also hearing that there are more than two steps here. In other words, I may get a report in 2021 that has some variant that's, a, that's an unknown significance of VUS, And it's not called at all. And then some studies come out that show that it might be putting, it might be conferring increased risk, let's just say for Alzheimer's, making something up. So now it's moved from nothing to something. And I imagine that would be the first example of when you'd want to recontact, right? That's a and good then, example. and now that we know that, people are starting to sample for it. They get a larger case control study and they find out, nope, it really doesn't seem to be conferring a significant increased risk. So it goes from likely pathogenic to truly benign. And now mm-hmm. you've taken me from nothing to oh my God to just kidding. Is so that why would like you it? trust us? Why would you trust us, Kevin? That is where I'm going with this. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So we're so we're, we're setting up a pipeline. We're going to ask providers to create to order these tests. Some patient who maybe has some variant that's at increased risk for epilepsy and suggests that they don't need surgery. Two years after the t- test comes back, it could turn out to be the case that that information is wrong. That's what you're telling me.
1: Yes, and this is—I think this brings up a couple oh. of conundrums. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> one of the one of the things that I think we also have to remember is that it is almost never appropriate to interpret this genetic material information absent some sort of clinical information too. This is part of a picture, okay? So that's, in many cases, it's part of a bigger picture. So we do have to remember that. And also that one of the great challenges in communication science, and Kevin, what is your area that you are diving deeply into, but communication science is the communication of uncertainty and change in science, right? Uh, we see that all the time as one of our big challenges, and we have got to figure out out right a way, and we have teams right here working exactly on this, to how we communicate with patients at the time of that first test to help them understand that things may change over time, and we're going to do our very best to make sure that they have the most up to date, most accurate information when they need it clinically.
2: So, basically, what blood pressure? What blood pressure, Kevin, gets you the the diagnosis of hypertension? Depends on your age, depends on your ancestry,
0: depends on your lots of things. Was that with, true? Was that true year? ten years ago? Was yeah. yeah, was that true ten years ago? <laughs> for pediatricians, it's always been true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, but in the adult population, how many times has that changed?
2: Yeah, it's changed. When a did lot.
1: pre-diabetes show up in the yeah. age, right? Like our recommendations What's for breast
2: cancer screening changed about every two years for about a decade. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like so this is this is one of the challenges here, I would say, at least we have some pretty good consensus and I'll say that we're generally using science to guide us. Um, You know, some of my colleagues would argue that that two step recommendation is is too big of a threshold. Let's say you're someone who has that variant that's likely benign and now it's likely pathogenic. So we thought it was nothing. That's only one step. And so we wouldn't necessarily the recommendation would not necessarily be to recontact based on just that change. Um, but that's, that's a threshold discussion that we've just got to have as a community.
0: So I do want to get to this ethics piece as we're getting close to the end, but I, I want to come back to Sarah here. So Sarah, you obviously knew all this, and yet when you were with the Emerge three cohort of patients who had to recontact, how much stock did you put into the finding from the patient who's deceased, who you're going to send to a family member, recognizing you may have to contact them later as science changes to tell them something different.
3: Yeah, I uh, we we had a great ethicist on our team, uh, the Ellen Wright Clayton. Ooh, who... Ellen!
0: Bowing. <laughs> Everybody's uh, bowing to Ellen.
3: She's on Ellen, our team too.
0: Ellen, yeah. we're bowing to you.
3: <laughs> Ellen really um, helped us understand what our, our responsibility was to the participant. Um, the For us, we provided genetic results that had actionability, meaning we, um, there was results that uh, were able to dictate, hey, you should get a mammogram um, or you should get this type of testing or you should start to see a doctor more often. Uh, but with the onus that these science change, and this result might um, be updated at some point. Um, because we were a research project, we said that we might re- recontact them if there was updated science. But we had a cutoff uh, for our science project because we were, not, we're going on to a next project. Um, and that's where the ethics come in, where you have to make it a hard choice of: Are you going to continue to recontact people for research projects um, with? Actual results that have implications? Um, or do you say we're just not going to recontact them and let them have additional genetic testing at some point and learn this on their own?
0: What's interesting about this, and this gets back to ethics, is you were making some decisions in that conversation, thanks to Dr. Clayton, about which ethical principles were going to drive our decision making. So, without getting into all the ethical principles, there, there are a couple really big ones here, one of which has to do with beneficence. Uh, the extent to which we believe that other that that there may be some benefit to something that outweighs its risk. Autonomy, which is the idea that people can be self-actualized to to perform things based on information of their own accord versus that of somebody else. And then I would say justice. I'm just going to talk about those three. So it strikes me that when you look at the principles of ethics, that that one of the challenges Melissa and Travis and you have had to really contend with here is we can't, really, we can't really assess relative risk at a time when the science is moving really quickly. That there may be real issues with regard to autonomy if, in fact, decisions that may be made are being made with sort of unsteady ground. In other words, if you, to, to use an extreme example, if I made a decision to do a surgical procedure based on a variant that would, that would cause a bad disease, and some people can imagine some examples I might have used, and then find out that it turns out that variant's no longer found to be significant, or that you tell somebody that their children are at risk for a disease. We know the story with certain really bad diseases like Huntington's and other diseases like that. Um, how, do, how do you go through all that? Is that? Is it really you pull out the entire ethical framework and you say, okay, Our strategy for this particular variant is going to be based on beneficence, because what we're going to uncover has low risk, high benefit, versus another population of patients deserve justice, which is an opportunity to be thought about fairly in terms of how they are treated after this piece of information. How do you, I mean, did Ellen get into that level of detail or was it sort of a gestalt of seems like the right thing to do?
3: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Uh, for us, what we had to do was as we returned the genetic results and as we consented participants a part of our study, we said, we need you to understand that science changes and what these results say might have a health benefit or something, a health risk for you, or it might not down the road because science changes. Um, you know, we actually saw this, I think a lot. And Melissa, I'm looking at you because we had the same thing happen with COVID. Oh yeah. <laughs> we had changing science uh, for COVID with, in regards to testing and mm-hmm. in regards to the vaccination um, plan mm-hmm. for all of the world to see mm-hmm. changing science. Oh, it started and, way
1: before that. Think about masks.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we're still we're seeing it now. I'm in the office. Yeah. I didn't wear a mask today. I was freaking out a little bit about it. Um, you know, I think being able to see that size changes so rapidly and so quickly because of the technology that we have um, and that we have so many uh, brilliant scientists out there um, is a scary thing for people. And so I think being able to remind people who get genetic testing or be a part of these studies. That this is not definite science, this is not perfect things change is really important to have that educational component and as the science changes being able to offer what that means and defining that and pr- providing explanations is really essential.
1: Yeah. And I'll say that I think that the certainty level of the science is also not consistent across, across all genetic areas. So we have some areas where there's really good, strong evidence, and it's pretty solid. And particularly in the cancer space with somatic type of testing, where you're testing the tumor itself to see what's, you know, what treatments it might respond to, that's going to be a lot more sure. That's not something about your overall DNA that we may learn something new, that we're learning new things all the time. And that's hard too, because when a patient hears genetic testing, they don't necessarily categorize into those different areas to know that the uncertainty may be different in different areas. So we've got to get better about that communication, I think, um, you know, as health systems and health communicators.
2: I'll expand on that just a little bit and say, even in what we would say the germline space where we're testing for the risks of disease that you, you might have in the future. If you're doing a panel-based test, so you have, um, you have congestive heart failure or some other disease that has prompted a provider to say, let's just look at the panel and make sure that this isn't something that you inherited. If you're only looking at a small number of genes, the fact that those genes are on the panel makes us much more confident about the science behind those genes the recontacting piece that's most challenging is when we're doing that whole exome testing. So when we're testing your basically your entire genome, every gene that you have in your body, that's that's the piece where we're likely going to have more of these recontact issues. So
0: a lot of organizations when it comes to medications have something called a pharmacy and therapeutics committee. And the goal of the pharmacy and therapeutics committee is to do all of this pre-work. So before I ever have an opportunity to order a particular medication, someone else has already made a decision, probably an ethical one based on issues of malfeasance and benefits, beneficence, et cetera. Do we have a similar kind of pharmacy and therapeutics committee in front of all of this genetic testing recommendations work?
1: We do have a, a what's called a lab formulary that helps make decisions about which tests should be established for in, in our system for ordering um, and so that's a corollary to that. I will say that I think this is a new area and a shifting area and it gets complicated because, you know, a lot of the labs to date have been external. And so I think health systems are having to make a lot of decisions about how, how you manage that process and where people should order tests and what tests should be ordered. So if
3: you, uh, so one of the things that we we did have, we had participants who after they did the blood draw and started going through the study, decided they didn't want to be a part of it, didn't want the testing, didn't want the results. Um, If you have a provider who says, I think we should order a genetic test, can you opt out? Because part of this does sound like, oh, this is a great opportunity for Vanderbilt to make a lot of money. Oh no,
1: this is really not about (laughs) making a lot of money. (laughs) No, I I think you you raise a good point. Absolutely. I mean, one of the core tenets of the work that we're doing is shared decision-making. And this is very much about helping clinicians and patients come to a decision about whether or not genetic testing is right for them in that circumstance, whether it's germline testing or somatic testing in the presence of a particular cancer diagnosis. And so that's a really, really important thing, that it is truly a shared thing. I think one of the unique things about Vanderbilt that a lot of places don't have is that we do have an internal genomics lab now that does some of the testing inside. And so that changes the dynamic just a little bit. And they will do whole exome testing and then a series, they're, they're building up more and more panels um, so that clinicians can order from right within Vanderbilt as opposed to going to an external lab. Well, this has been
0: fascinating, guys. I you know, I can imagine as a as a listener of this podcast that we have covered ground they've never thought they would here? I mean, who's thinking this way? And the fact that, you know, Vanderbilt and other organizations like Vanderbilt are trying to get ahead in making this a reality, this, you know, everybody's probably seen at least one cartoon that talks about the patient handing somebody their genetics and saying, fix me, right? The fact that we're in the process of, of really bringing that up, where you can order the tests, you can receive results, you can have the results explained, we have an, ethics, an ethical team thinking about it, we're, we're translating research that Sarah Bland and others are doing into that same kind of ecosystem, pretty fascinating, pretty fascinating. And I I think, you know, I know Galen was talking a little bit about how comfortable she is with this and how she thinks of it as a lab test. She may not necessarily know how much it's not like a lab test, but you guys are doing everything you can to make it a lab test. Um, And then Travis's point, which I'm so thankful you brought up blood pressures as a great example of the fact that we in healthcare have to be used to uncertainty and that there's a way that we have to communicate findings that change over time, trust that may or may not be um, permanent, as as we talked about with masks and COVID and some other things, and the whole issue of truth, which never is available, right? Science is never, ever, ever set up to, uh, to establish truth, maybe sometimes to refute truth, but not to establish it all fits into how we do this this experiment and this really important kind of evolution of medicine. So thanks. You bet. It's a
1: pleasure.
3: Well,
0: that was a conversation that covered a lot of science and a lot of medicine. And I really want to thank all of our guests today for making it completely understandable, I think. It wouldn't have been possible without you guys. Thanks also, Galen, for giving us a glimpse into the world of the singer's voice and for framing the discussion around genome informed care using music. This was a great episode, and I look forward to doing more. This is Kevin Johnson at KBJ Vanderbilt signing off. Have a wonderful rest of your day. See ya. Science, I'm living it.
1: Before we get out of this building, I am going to come give you a hug.
3: Oh, okay. It's
1: been way too long.
3: What makes
0: you think I'm in this building?
1: Because I just went down and looked in your window, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I waved at you.
1: <laughs> you did. It was so good to actually see your face. I'm yeah. like, I didn't realize just how much I missed people until I'm starting to see. Them. Them again and it's like yeah. oh yeah
0: <laughs> well and that's what's comical. i mean obviously you're you know you have the you have the extroverted gene right and that's what's comical about this is the people i talk with who genuinely have been here and seen people and then i say so when you think about coming back and they're like don't want to do it <laughs> it's like did you not enjoy that experience you just had and they're like well we love seeing each other but we see each other this way we see each other that way So I realized it's just too, it's a minute from Mars, if you will, introverts from Mars and extroverts are from this problem.
1: Yeah. It's a, I did discover my inner introvert and loved it. Like I realized that I was giving too much energy out Mm -hmm. and I learned how to be a little more quiet. Did you? Which was really nice to actually be like, Oh, I need more quiet time. I need downtime a little more than I thought I did. And so that was a lesson. Yeah. Um, A valuable one, I think.